Well, good morning. Welcome uh, back to church. How you doing? Doing good? Glad you're here. Hope you had a wonderful 4th of July weekend. This was uh, an unplanned 4th of July for the Burris family. We didn't make a single plan, and sometimes we like it that way. But we went to the Weston Aquatic Center on July 4th. Nobody was there. It was awesome. <laughs> if you uh, want to go to the Aquatic Center when nobody's there, try the 4th of July. We weren't sure it was going to be open, so we loaded up all the swim gear, and indeed it was, and we couldn't find anything online, but it was just so relaxing. Yesterday, we went to Rib Mountain. We learned that we are not a hiking family <laughs> yet. Uh, in part because halfway through the trail, we looked down and we were all wearing Crocs, okay? It's like not exactly adequate gear uh, for the climbing uh, sport, but we had an awesome time as a family. And there was one point where Shannon and I, three, out of, three kids out of four needed to be carried. <laughs> There's only two of us. <laughs> so we had this rotational thing going. It was, it was interesting, to say the least. We introduced a trait last week uh, from the latter half of James chapter 4 that I want to talk about a little more today on this holiday weekend, and that is the trait of humility. This is what we ended with in a thought. Uh, none of us can really say, I am so humble. <laughs> it's just not something we can say, Right? Um, this is uh, something that I've been just working on, and God is humbling me and changing me, and I'm proud to announce that I've finally arrived at humility. You know, it's just not something that makes any sense whatsoever. It doesn't work, and even if we are relatively humble compared to our neighbors or peers or family members. It just isn't something a humble guy or gal would, would say. Instead, the right attitude of the Christ follower, we said last week, was that we're in pursuit of humility, that we're prideful people. We always will be, but something we're constantly chasing, constantly pursuing. And it can be a passionate pursuit um, but if it's genuine, I would hope we would all agree it ought to be a rather private, quiet pursuit. It's not something we brag about, our pursuit of humility. And so, uh, last week we touched on this. I'm going to read the closing half, roughly, of the chapter to you, maybe even a little more, and then we're going to look at how this works practically. We'll begin in verse 6. Uh, a few of these verses we let, read last week, they'll be repeat, and then we'll get into new material through the end of the chapter. Verse 6, James chapter 4 through 17. But God gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, O you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn. And weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. 
But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, he, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is a sin. And so we kind of bookend this reading this morning with being instructed to be humble and then being instructed uh, against boasting. So I want to talk to you about humility. And in particular, I want to give you a list this morning. These are 10 very practical things, very practical things that humility allows us to do in conflict. Last week, we talked about conflict. If you're involved in conflict, which all of us are, I'd encourage you to catch that message online if you missed it. But humility, uh, when in conflict, the first thing I'll, I'll say is that it allows us to see our sin. We're good or bad at seeing other people's sin. Oh, we're so good. We're so finely tuned. We're so aware. But when it becomes a matter of self-awareness, uh, we're not as in tune. We're aloof. Uh, we often overlook ways in which we might be in the wrong. And I think when we cloak ourselves in humility and not pride and arrogance, when we're in a fight with you-know-who, whoever you-know-who is to you, humility allows us to see where we're wrong in addition to seeing where someone else is wrong. It's an important part of resolving conflict. Number two, how many of you know if we're doing 10 of these, we better move through them quickly. <laughs> Number two, get quieter, not louder. Get quieter, not louder. Pursuing humility in conflict allows us to get quieter, not louder. How do you tell when a conflict moves from a disagreement to an argument? It gets a little louder. How do you tell when it moves from an argument to a fight? gets louder still, doesn't it? How do you tell when something moves from a fight in a public square to an all-out riot? Well, it gets a lot louder, doesn't it? So when the volume goes up, the underlying attitude is this. I'm going to win this thing. And, and then, no, I'm going to win. Again, the attitude. No, I'm going to win! I don't need to do another level, do I, for you to get the point? Everybody's kind of got it by now? Okay. So humility says, when you get louder, I'm going to choose to be quieter. Dave Ramsey says that when things grow quiet as a mouse around the house and, and two people refuse to talk to each other, it's usually the more mature person that engages first. that wants to initiate, that wants to resolve things. Um, like, in, 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 uh, I should say like this, I, I'd say that it's usually the more mature person that brings the tone, the volume down, that refuses to get louder, that dials things back. When you get louder, humility says, 
I'm going to get quieter. I'm going to invite you into my quiet way of dialoguing and resolving conflict. It's exceedingly important, I would add, when it comes to kids, yes or no? Yeah. You should argue in front of your children, said no wise person ever, ever, ever. Kids are so absorbent. Kids, um, at a minimum, grow incredibly insecure and feel unstable in a home where mom and dad are barking at each other. Um, as, as you know, at, at, at a maximum, kids can be permanently damaged from these kinds of interactions. So we ought to grow quieter, not louder. Number three, we ought to listen more and speak less. Humility, humility allows us to, to listen. What do I need to hear in conflict? Well, I need to ask questions like this. What, what, what's at the root of this conflict? Where's north in, in this conflict? What's helpful in this conflict? What can I possibly learn in this conflict? Remember in chapter 3, James talked about the tongue. The tongue being the root of all evil, a restless evil. He says, we're like wild horses. When it comes to our tongue, they, they have bits in their mouths to keep them under control, to keep uh, the, the, the owner of, of the animal um, in, in charge. And we need too. We need something, some, some force in charge of our speech. Humility allows us to see a bit. We talked about a bit. James talked about a bit in the mouth of horses as a good thing, not a bad thing. Humility during conflict wants the bit to be in place. We desire the bit. We're fine with the bit. We like the bit. Because the bit keeps us in submission. The bit keeps us under control. It's arrogance and pride that drives us out of the pen, turns us into stallions. God desires that his people be broken in, so to speak. Amen? Number four, submit to godly authority. Humility allows us to submit to godly authority. We shouldn't submit to all authority. We should submit. I would argue to godly authority. All of us should. In certain moments, um, we want to be our own authority. We want to win at something, some argument, some work situation. So we ignore godly authority. This is where the husband will not listen to his Christian friends that care about him. Um, he will not listen to mentors, maybe even church leadership, regarding the way that he treats his wife. This has happened. This has happened here at the mill. And he says, the heck with this, I'm out. What he's saying is, I, I want her to be under my authority, but I don't want to be under the authority of anybody else. That's a, a damaging place to be. Damaging to a home, damage to self, damage to others. Submitting the authority of godly people. Church, hear my heart. I will never stand before you and say, um, even though the Bible expresses as much, I'm probably a little fearful to say it because I know the damage that's been created in using scriptures that talk about the authority of the church and the pastor and so on and so forth. So we don't play those cards here. 
Um, but I'll tell you that godly authority in general, whether it's a dear Christian that you admire, a mentor, a spouse, a pastor, is a good thing and we ought to submit to it. It keeps us from danger. It keeps us healthy. Do you have any godly people in your life that you go to for advice when you need it? Especially when it pertains to conflict. You need that. You need a third party occasionally. Occasionally you need to bring somebody else into the conflict. Have them listen to both sides. It's good. It's healthy. Number five, submit to God. Pastor James says this directly. We're to submit to God. This means the goal of conflict resolution is not to win. That's not the goal. I'll even take it this far. Conflict is never about winning. It's never about winning. That's what we insert into the equation. That's our goal as fallen humanity. Darn it, I've got to win this thing. My pride is at stake. My rightness is at stake. Rather, conflict ought to be about, godly conflict, it ought to be about worship. What do you mean, pastor? I mean, instead of asking, how can I emerge victorious? How can I emerge gloriously? We ought to ask these questions. What, what will honor the Lord in this conflict? What will bring glory to God in this conflict? What pleases him? What reaction of mine would make him smile with delight? When he says, submit yourself to God, that's what James is saying. Worldly conflict is about winning. Godly conflict is about worshiping. Do you default to Jesus? Number six, resist the devil. Another direct quote from James. We're to resist the devil. This is language related to combat. James isn't telling us to combat the person that we're in argument with. He says, fight Satan. That's what he's saying. Resist the devil. Fight him. He says this, uh, Paul does elsewhere in, in, to the church at Ephesus, our war isn't against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, um, dark places. James is saying you need to hold your ground against Satan. When assault is launched on you, don't retreat. Don't run. March forward. The armies of Satan will pursue you, will hound you. They're hoping that you'll retreat that you'll suffer defeat. And here's how this pertains to conflict. Satan is regularly giving us a script on how to handle our particular conflict in a worldly way. I mean, he gives us the exact words to say. When we're in conflict, he plants them in our heart. On that script includes raising the voice and pointing the finger and getting a red face. And looking down, some of us over our glasses, and being defensive, and manipulating the conversation for our own gain, and faking apologies, and passive-aggressive behavior, and occasionally even the throwing of objects, and all kinds of abuse, physical, emotional, 
And resisting the devil says, no, by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I will not fight in this way. I'm going to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm going to respond in a way that's godly, not worldly. Amen? Number seven, resist the devil, and he follows it with, draw near to God. Draw near to God. This is another one directly from the lips of James. Some of these other points, by the way, are just kind of practical wisdom that may be inferred but not directly mentioned in the text. Um, Draw near to God. In in ancient military campaigns, um, this nation would go out and this nation would go out and and there was all this, um, this flurry of activity. And if you were a soldier and if you were fighting, you could get disoriented. You, in hand-to-hand combat, would get tired, exhausted. Um, you'd be wearing heavy gear. You'd be just perpetually uh, exerting energy, and, and, and disorientation would set in, and you'd, you'd think, where are we? Where is my team even? And people would get physically lost in the battle. And, and, and you'd, you'd ask yourself questions as you're fighting. Uh, where are my guys at? Um, where is my team? And James tells us, in the middle of conflict, when you're disoriented, when you don't know what direction is up, find God. Get to God. Draw near to God. Stick by the Lord. Stay close to him. Read the scriptures. Sing songs. Um, I just uh, received, uh, Shan and I just... Every, every once in a while, one of you will send us a report, and we're like, we just thank God. We just take a moment and pray and just are grateful for his work in your lives. Um, and we got a message from somebody in a, in a big city close by. Um, there was a, a surgical procedure that happened, and, and just this individual said, I'm just going down the streets of this big urban center, praising and thanking God for his goodness. And it was just like so encouraging, like, yes. You're running to God. You're drawing near to God. I know you've been disoriented. You haven't known which, which way is up. But you're drawing close to the Father. There's a song we used to sing in the church when I was a kid. I am my beloved and he is mine. You know this one? Help me finish it. His banner over me is love. Okay? You know why we sing that? I don't know that that's why we sing that, but I'll tell you this. In this same kind of ancient warfare and, and conflict, one guy was the flag guy. He wasn't given a sword. He was given a, a flag. I hate to be that guy, right? You're not given a sword. You're given a flag. And he was told, run around with a flag. And the purpose was so that everybody who was disoriented and lost, would see the flag raised high, the banner, and they would know to run to the banner, and that's how we keep the team together. That's how we fight off of and with each other because we know where center is, okay? Uh, it actually reminds me um, tangentially of this, this man, uh, friends of our family, lived with he and his wife in uh, grad school for about a year, and um, he told me a story once about how he was in the Coast Guard, and they didn't give him a gun, they gave him a whistle. 
and he was in charge on the on the the runway of of directing not on the runway but um, you know to to taxi planes to and from the runway with his cones and his whistle, and his son Paul used to make fun of him, and said, "Dad, seriously, like armed forces, like you had a whistle." And he looks at him, and his response is his classic dad, right? And his response is, Paul, I never lost a plane. Never lost a plane, Paul. And this is it. In ancient times, they give the guy the flag. And his job wasn't to win the battle. His job was to raise the flag up. And in and, and church, what James is saying is when you get disoriented in the many conflicts of life, find Jesus. He's the flag. He's who you need to run to. Draw near to him. Prioritize prayer and Christian friendship and Bible reading and godly counsel. Run to Jesus when you're in conflict. Number eight, get cleaned up. Get cleaned up. It's part of the purpose for communion. To take an inventory of our heart. To find out where we're in obstinance against God in our lives. And, and he, he actually uses stronger language. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Have, have you noticed the Bible actually um, calls us saints more often than we're called sinners? James doesn't use the word saints here. He's pretty direct. I think the Bible more often uses the word saints because it wants to identify with sainthood. This is who we are in Christ. This is our identity. But as Christ followers, you and I know, our activity is sometimes sin. We sin. And James here um, uses the word sinners because, as you know, every saint has moments where he or she acts like a sinner. We sin. It's not who we are. It is what we do. And James says, you've got to get cleaned up. Wash your hands. In other words, look at your life and ask the questions. Have I done anything wrong lately? Is there anything I need to fix? Is there anybody that I need to apologize to? Is there anything I need to do differently? And own it and own it and wash your hands and change. Number nine, we're almost done. Be patient. I said this last week, but sometimes we need to wait a night or a week or longer before we engage or re-engage a conflict. Sometimes there's just got to be space. Sometimes bullets are flying and we just need to get down and just stay down until the dust settles. Um, until it's safe to take healthy steps forward. I rarely, but seldomly do advocate for a separation. And I'm not the only one I've heard authors and well-known pastors do the same on Focus on the Family, on the radio, and there's times where we need to be patient. Time is a healing factor, and we need to leverage it. Number 10, refrain from judging. If you'll recall last week, James begins his topic with a great question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? 
It's a great question. And he ends today with another really good question. Who are you to judge? Who are you to judge? Now, we say this all the time, but when we say it, what we mean is, I'm judging you, but who are you to judge me? <laughs> judge me. Aren't we making a judgment when we, when we ask somebody who they're judging? I mean, we really are. A lot of times we're assuming motive when we ask somebody or, or allege that somebody's judging us, right? And, and, and then James says, do not speak evil against one another. We're going to have conflict. We are in our lives. But nobody, and, and let's think of this in our, in our biological families just for, just for a moment, and maybe even extend this to our church family. Nobody has to die. Nobody needs to be kicked out. Nobody ought to quit or set the house on fire. We ought, we ought not to live in this world where either all hell is going to break loose or we're going to ignore all problems and never deal with things. There's safety in the middle. We can confront gently in patience and resolve things together as a team. He says, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only, how many did James say? How many lawgivers? One. What do you mean, we say? We can't be the lawgivers? Well, fine. I'll be the judge. And he says, no, there's only one of those two. There's one lawgiver, one judge. It's Jesus Christ, he who is able to save and to destroy. We make, most of the time, poor judges. Do we or don't we? We even judge before the other side presents their argument. I do this with my kids. Miles would come running up to me. Dad, Levi did this. Levi! <laughs> Haven't heard Levi's side of the argument. Not even for a moment. Proverbs tells us everybody seems right until you hear the side of the other guy or gal. What does the author of, of Proverbs feel why, why does he feel a need to give us that wisdom? It's because oftentimes something happens and somebody decides, I'm going to be the judge. I'm going to convene a jury. I'm going to assemble a team around me. I'm going to render a verdict. And James says, don't assume Jesus' bench. It's his seat. Allow me to leave this thought with you this morning, and, and we've kind of circled around it but not hit it directly on the head. If you're in a conflict with family today, whether that's a spouse or a, or a father-in-law. Probably name the two most common conflicts. Remember this, your family, you're not enemy. Your family, you're not enemies. We were um, somewhere along the Red Trail yesterday, our family on Rib Mountain. Uh, the uh, 
green trail is the shortest. The blue trail is next uh, in length longer uh, than the red trail. We did the blue trail, um, and we decided to take the challenge of the red trail, which is twice as long. Um, somewhere halfway down the red trail was a time in which we started carrying three kids and rotating and blisters were forming and mosquitoes were biting and it was getting hairy very quickly. And um, I said, here's what we're going to do, Burris family. We don't quit. We, we actually had a couple opportunities to cut off. Blue trail goes this way. Green trail, go, they would merge for a bit and one of them would go back. You could see, you could see the parking lot but then you look over here and you'd see a red square. And you know you're going to go all the way down here before you get back to there, you know. And, and I said, honey, do we want to cut, cut, you know, take the shortcut and head back? No, we committed to this. So little did we know it took us way around and back. But we're, we're on this journey as a family, a one-year-old, a three-year-old, a five-year-old, an eight-year-old. And I said, we're going to do a cheer. And so I taught him a cheer. And Levi was leading. I said, Burris in the front, let me hear you grunt. And he'd go, Ugh! <laughs> And I'd say, Burris in between, let me hear you scream. And Nora would go, ah! <laughs> and we'd say, Burris in the rear, let me hear you cheer. And Miles would say, go, Burris, go, Burris, go. Go, Burris, go, Burris, go. And it, like, got us through, Right? the second half of this experience, this hike together. But I had to talk them into this truth. Family is family, not enemy. They were bumping up against each other, nudging each other, pushing each other, vying for leadership. Everybody wants to be the one to look for the next red square on a post. We're family. We're not enemies. And in the sense that James intended to communicate it here, church is a family. Church is a family. We are not enemies of one another. Amen? I don't sense a need to say this. I'm just preaching what James preached. He's saying church is a family. And if you forget that, you will act in ways that are worldly, not godly. So, Father... We just pray this morning that in all areas of conflict in our lives, Lord, that you would help us to respond in godly ways. Lord, I pray that you would help us to refrain from judging. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to be patient and put space in where space is needed. I pray you'd help us clean up and keep short lists with you, Father. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us draw near to you. Lord, that we'd read, that we'd pray, that we'd seek counsel. I pray that we would draw near to other brothers and sisters, that we would resist the devil. Lord, I pray, God, that you'd help us to submit to godly authority, to listen more often than we speak. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to get quieter, not louder. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.